Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 today, and I've entitled this message, God at Work on Our Attitude. God at Work on Our Attitude. We are in this series called Becoming. We're going verse by verse through the book of Philippians. Always enjoy going verse by verse through the books of the Bible. We cannot pick and choose. We have to cover the Scripture as it's written. And I believe there's deep treasure that's pulled out of these uh, really highly impactful, really thick scriptures that sometimes we go through doing a scripture by scripture, verse by verse study. And in verses 1 through 11 today, we get to some of the most important theologically uh, dense scriptures that we see in all of the New Testament. Through this series, we've been talking about this idea of becoming. In other words, who are you becoming? This question answers, who am I? God, what are you doing in my life? It also answers the bigger question of, God, who are you, and what are you doing? We sometimes process this question throughout different phases of life. And that question of who we are and who we're becoming is something we need to process. It's something we need to be made aware of, and it's something that we need to be reminded of, specifically in very difficult seasons, in seasons of darkness where doubt or cynicism and bitterness, anger, sometimes arise where we're suffering grief and loss it's easy to sometimes doubt who am i god who are you god are you present in my life and and are you there do you see me and we've asked the question wouldn't it be great to have a clear answer to who am i what am i becoming god where are you and what are you doing and we say that the book of philippians does this it helps us answer the question of who am i It's written by the Apostle Paul. He's in a Roman jail. I've showed you pictures before of this jail. It was not a very comfortable place. He was literally chained to a guard 24 hours a day. And whenever he needed permission to move, he needed to ask the guard. If he needed to use the bathroom, the guard was there. When he slept, the guard was there. I mean, this was a very challenging, difficult time. On top of that, messengers come to visit Paul and they tell him, that the church that he planted back in Philippi is struggling. There's division in the church. There's arguing in the church. There's people in the church that are not getting along. People are acting selfishly. Other people are doing uh, the preaching and they're doing it for their own fame. And Paul, who has a deep love for this church, writes this letter to encourage them, to remind them that, look, God is always working on you. Even here with me in chains in this prison, God is still working. The gospel is going forward through my struggle. And now in verse 2, after Paul has laid out the foundation of the the letter in chapter 1, he turns his attention to the people's attitude, their mind, the way they go about life. And this is such an important aspect when it comes to our walk with God and who we are and our ideas of our identity of who am I and who am I becoming. To kind of set the groundwork for this, I I want to share that a couple years ago there was this attraction that came through Chicago and it was called The Happy Place. Did anybody have a chance to go there? It was a very unique attraction. It was like in this warehouse and you would pay, you know, a simple fee to get in and I went with my family and you would go through these different rooms and they were just different scenes, right? I mean, they were very artistic different lighting, there was a room with a bunch of mirrors, there was a room where there was just confetti cannons going off, 
uh, everywhere. You would walk through this confetti kind of maze. But there was this one room in particular in the happy place that really blew my mind. It was an upside-down bedroom. The bed was literally bolted to the ceiling. And I have pictures here. You can see my son. Uh, his face kind of explains it all because he's standing on the light um, and you see the room is upside down and my daughter, uh, you don't know, where is she? Where is she standing? This room was very unique because it disoriented you. It made you question what's up, what's down and in these pictures you can't even really tell sometimes and, and I didn't really know that this was a thing. Like, did you know you could go to Wisconsin Dells just a few hours from here and visit an upside-down White House? I have a picture of it here. I never knew that was there. I've been to the Dells before. I didn't know there was an upside-down White House that you could walk through. All over Europe, Africa, South America, there's upside-down houses. There's this blue house in Germany where you could go, and you visit this upside-down house. There's even, in Kathmandu, I would love to go there one day, an upside-down resort, a whole resort, restaurants, stores, shopping galleries, that they built this whole resort space upside down. You can see it here in the picture. And, and what's amazing about these places is it just kind of distorts your reality, right? It gives you a different perspective of things, of, of just how regular we are when things are right side up. And when things are upside down, it catches our attention. And it gets us thinking, what would life be like to live in a place like this? Why am I mentioning this? Because Paul, in chapter 2, is saying to the church, he's saying, your attitude is upside down. He's saying your ways of thinking, the way you view yourself, and the way you view God, and the way you work for God right now is upside down. You guys need to flip your thinking around. You need to flip your attitude around if you're going to allow God to work in your life and if you're going to become the person that He wants you to be. Chapter 1, Paul reminds us in verse 6, right? He's certain that God is always working. And the God who began the good work will continue it until the day of Jesus' coming, right? In verse 12, he goes on and he says, Look at my life. Everything that's happened to me, me being in chains, me being in prison, you would think it's horrible. You would think it's, this suffering is, is the worst thing that happened in my life. But God is using this. He's saying everything that's happened to me has helped push the gospel forward. Paul's theology in chapter 1 is completely Christ first. Jesus first in everything. Even in my suffering, Jesus first. He says, hey, I would rather prefer to die than to live so I could go be with Jesus. But for your cause, for your sake, I'll press on and I'll choose to live. His whole theology in chapter 1 is Christ first. Now in chapter 2, Paul begins and he says, hey, Christ first, chapter 2, others next. Now this is where it gets upside down because in the world we live in, what we're taught, what we're shown, what's right side up in our world is, hey, I come first. Okay, you know, let's give God His place, Christ first, but me next. And Paul is saying that's upside down. That doesn't make sense. What if I could disorient your thinking a little bit? What if I could change your perspective and show you that the mind and attitude of Christ is an upside-down attitude where you put others before yourself? What Paul addresses here in chapter 2 
is the root of the problem in the church in Philippi. Their attitude. Their mind. Now, I want you to hear me well today. Your attitude changes everything. And hear this part even more. You are 100% in charge of your attitude. You have 100% ownership of your attitude. You can choose to have a better attitude. You can choose a different outlook. You could choose to live life with a different attitude because you are 100% in charge of the attitude that you have. There's been studies that have been done in psychology and other fields that show the greatest determining factor to your quality of life is your attitude. Your relationship quality is not determined how people respond to you. It's not even really determined how you respond to them, but it's determined by your attitude. Your relationships. Your success in the workplace, research has shown. It's not really what happens there. It's not really what your bosses say. It's the attitude that you bring to your workplace. Now, I know that we have many excuses on why we have the poor attitudes that we sometimes have, right? We're grumpy. Life has dealt us a bad hand. We've had struggles. We've had issues. But yet, I want you to consider Paul who's been beaten, he's been flogged, he's been shipwrecked, he's almost died several times for the faith, he's been chased out of cities, he's sitting in a Roman jail, he knows his death is awaiting him, and yet he says, your attitude matters. We have no excuse. You are 100% in charge of your attitude. Pastor Chuck Swindoll, classic pastor, author, leader, He says this about attitude. He says, attitude to me is more important than education, than money, than circumstances, than failure, than successes. It is more important than what people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or scale. It will make or break a company, a church, a home, a marriage. The remarkable thing is that we have the choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Powerful, powerful words. I like what he says there. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. Another way to say that is life is 90%. Life is, um, life, he says, I'm convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. Another way of saying that is life is 10% of what happens to you And life is 90% of what happens through you. 10% of what happens to me. 90% of what happens through me. So here's where the world has it upside down. Because they would say life is 90% of what happens to me. My traumas, my failures, my anxieties, my worries, my issues... My father leaving when I was a child. My drug addiction. My failed marriage. The business that never got off the ground. 
the horrible neighborhood I was raised in, the terrible education I was given. Those things have come to define me. Chuck Swindoll, and what Paul is saying here in, in Philippians chapter 2 is, th- that's the 10%. The 90% is, what is God doing through that? It's not what happens to you, it's what happens through you. And your attitude determines the outcome of that 90%. So the, the big idea is this, it's a very simple big idea is that God is always working on who we are and who we are becoming. And he does that by working in and changing our attitude. Paul makes it very clear that you are able to have the mind of Christ. Wrap your mind around that. That you could have the attitude of Jesus. So I want to share with you today four attitudes that Paul appeals the church to have. He says, hey, have this attitude and then take this action. It's an attitude which is an inward thing and then there's an action which is an outward expression of the internal truth, if that makes sense. So I want to share with you the four attitudes and then the actions that go with those attitudes. And the the first one, beginning in chapter 1, I call the attitude of submission. It's the attitude of knowing that you're below God and God is in control of all things in your life and God determines your steps. It begins there. Without this attitude of submission, you're your own God. You're your own master. You don't walk in obedience. Everything God says to you, you just kind of blow off and do your own thing because you have not submitted your heart to him yet. It begins with an attitude of submission. And the action there is he over me. Him over I. I mean, however you want to word it. He over me. And this is what Paul says beginning in verse 1. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? This is a total rhetorical question. Paul is not saying, is, like, is there something there? No, he's not saying, is there? He's really saying, because there is. If you've ever parented, you, ha- you know this type of questioning. When you tell your child to do something, and they ask you a question, are you serious? How do parents reply? Do I look like I'm serious? You're not really asking them. You're telling them, look, I'm serious. (laughs) Paul is not asking, is is there encouragement in the Lord? He says, look, you've been encouraged. You've experienced the encouragement of Jesus. He's brought you from a place where he's filled you with his power. He's giving you a mission. He's giving you a purpose. You've been encouraged by Jesus. You've been comforted by the deep love of Christ. You've understood that he went and he bore a cross for your shame and for your sin and that he's purchased you back so that you could be made right before the Father. I mean, that's love. He's saying you've experienced this. He's saying, hey, you've had fellowship with the Spirit. You know what it's like to be in a room praying with people from different countries, different nationalities, different experiences, but yet you feel one with them. Why? Because you have fellowship of the Spirit. Have you ever met a believer for the first time and you say hello to them and you get in a conversation with them and you feel like you've known them forever? Have you ever experienced that? Why is that? That's called fellowship of the Spirit. There's a kindred spirit between you and them, a connection that's deeper than just flesh. And Paul is saying, you've experienced this. You know this. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? He's saying, hey, do you remember before you met Christ how hard-hearted you were? 
how you didn't really care about others, how you really didn't care about people, but now your hearts are tender, your hearts are soft, you're compassionate. God has filled you with His mercy, with His love, with His grace. He's saying, hey, do you remember this stuff? He's saying, hey, God has worked in you. Submit to that. Him over you. He's setting up the track of thinking that's saying, hey, this whole idea about improving your attitude is not about you working at it, you doing more at it. You know, there's a lot of Christianity that's preached, we got to do better, we got to fix ourselves, we got to get it right, we got to do the work. Hey, it's never your power that fixes you. You know whose power fixes you? Jesus' power at working you fixes you. And Paul is saying, look, it's not because you guys got it all together. It's not because you're brilliant. It's not because you're sharp. It's not because you're pretty. It's not because it's Valentine's Day and you got a great box of chocolates and a rose bouquet waiting for you at home. He's saying it's because Christ has worked in you that you'll be able to achieve this mind of Christ. It's the importance of identity. It's saying you are found in the love, in the embrace, in the presence of of Jesus and everything we do flows from who we are and you can't live in a way of the father unless you have the heart of the father you need this identity you need to know that you are operating in this submission to God that it's he over me that it's his ways over my ways that it's only going to be in his power and his strength that i'm able to achieve or even get close to this this attitude that i need to live in a way that worthy of the gospel so we need this identity we need to have this foundation now now how do we live this way paul just begins to say hey you've been encouraged you've been loved you have fellowship You've been changed, so now do this. Verse 2, he says, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind. Another word for mind there is attitude. With one attitude and one purpose. The idea of one mind or attitude says that we're empowered We're empowered with a different type of mind to have a different type of attitude. An attitude that's not shaped by your temporary struggle, but an attitude that's shaped by your eternal reality. That God loves you. That you've been saved, that you've been redeemed, that you've been healed, that you've been made whole in His eyes. This idea that we could have this one mind and purpose means that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. It's not shaped by being tied to a Roman guard in jail. It's tied in Paul knowing that even if he dies, he inherits the kingdom. It's this idea, this reality that leads our mind to be renewed, that allows us to agree with one another, that allows you to love one another. It allows us here now to gather into this place where we all have different interests. There's not uniformity in this house, but there's unity in this house. There's unity in purpose and unity in mind and mission. Make disciples. Preach the gospel into all nations. There's not uniformity in how we do it, But there's unity in the mission behind it. And Paul is saying, agree with one another. Make me happy 
Make my joy complete. It's the attitude of submission. Knowing that it's He over me. The second attitude that Paul goes on to describe is an attitude of selflessness. Not selfishness, but selflessness. And the action there is to look at people and say, it's you over me. Or you over I. The first attitude, submission. He over me. Christ first. Second, others next. Selflessness, you over me. Look what Paul says here to the church. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Talk about upside down. Everything we're taught in this world, you're number one. Look out for yourself. Paul's flipping it and he's saying, hey, what if I disorient you? What if I give you a different perception of reality and I say, hey, be selfless? What Paul is really addressing here is the root of all sin. You know what the root of all sin is? Pride. Pride is the root of all sin. Any sin you could think of. Any sin. Pull the thread on that and what you'll arrive at, at the genesis of that sin, is pride. And Paul is saying, look, look, do nothing out of your own self-interest. Don't self-exalt yourself. You know, there was once a person who self-exalted themselves. He exalted himself above God, as a matter of fact. And you know what happened to that person? He was kicked out of heaven. His name was Lucifer. What was at the root of Lucifer's sin? Pride. He thought he was above God. And as Paul was hearing the, 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 the happenings of the local church, the arguments, and he'll even later on in the letter go out to call two sisters by name. He'll call them out by name. And some of the other divisive acts and the way people were acting in their own self-interest, Paul hits it straight. He goes right to the nerve and he says, hey, don't be selfish. Selfish ambition, we all see the danger of selfish ambition, right? I mean, it's ruined families. It's ruined companies. Anybody remember Enron? Where selfish ambition, the need to get mine, I got to get mine, destroyed a multi-billion dollar company. Thousands of people lost their jobs. Thousands lost their life savings. Why? Selfish ambition. We see marriages ruined because of selfish ambition. One person or two persons, their agenda is the only thing that matters. They can't be selfless. They can't be sacrificial. They can't be, you know, giving to one another. They just want to take, 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 and it destroys marriages. We see this in our political atmosphere, don't we? It's what we want. We're right. You're wrong. We've seen this selfishness strip people of their human dignity and homeless, and immigrants, and the marginalized, and the casted out are stripped of their essential human dignity. Why? Because people just want more for themselves. This I gotta get mine mentality is so dangerous because it'll literally make you run over whoever you need to so that you could get yours. And Paul is saying, have you been encouraged in Christ? Have you sensed his love? 
Have you had fellowship with the Spirit? Is your heart tender? Don't be selfish. Be selfless. Paul rebukes this attitude, and he's saying you're not called to have that attitude of selfishness. You're called to have the attitude of selflessness. And it starts there. It's impossible to be others-focused when you're so self-obsessed. Have you ever had a self-obsessed friends? You sometimes wonder, am I even here? Because everything's just about them. The conversations are about them. The choices of life and what's important become about them. The priorities and what you devote yourself to become what they want. Why? Because they're so self-obsessed. And Paul is saying, you cannot have the mind of Christ. You can't be others-focused if you're so self-focused. Change that attitude. You over I. The word here to, to not only look out at your own interests, but take an interest in others. Another translation there says, be considerate of others. What does it mean to be considerate of others? It means you consider them. It means you see them. You acknowledge their pain, their joys. You're aware of the, these people and, and, and other people other than yourself. It's hard to do that when your heart is so buried in pride. It means that you not only see others, it means you hear them. You hear their stories. Hear where they hurt. Hear their successes. Hear their anxieties. One of the greatest commodities that you have to give, and you are 100% control of this commodity, and you get to choose how much you give of it, and it's endless, is your empathy. Your empathy for people. When was the last time you sat across someone and actually took this thing and said, you know what, let me put that over there. And let me give you the attention that you need. You have an endless supply of empathy. God has created you that way. It's the greatest commodity, one of the greatest commodities that you have to give. And the way you consider others or you take interest in others is to hear them. It's very simple. Another thing you do is understand others. Before you ask to be understood, try understanding others. This idea of seeing others, of hearing others, of understanding others, it will change your relationships. It will change your marriage. It will change your home. It will change communities. It will change neighborhoods because its ripple effects are felt in long distances. And Paul is saying here, don't be selfish. Be selfless. Uh, in verse 5, he gives us the ultimate role model, right? The ultimate example, Jesus Christ. And this is the next attitude that he says, not only do we need to have the attitude of submission, but we need to have the attitude of selflessness. We also need to have the attitude of humility. And the action of the attitude of humility is out over in. In other words, I prefer to pour myself out than having people fill me in. Now this is where Paul gets into one of the deepest theologically dense statements made in the entire New Testament. This is what's called the kenosis. The kenosis passage. Kenosis is a Greek word which means emptying out. To empty something out means kenosis. And what Paul is describing here is how Jesus emptied himself out. Now, this is where some weird, theologically twisted people 
have, have taken Scripture and, and disoriented it and, and misrepresented it. So I want to be very clear on what the Scripture says and what the Scripture doesn't say. But this is the kenosis. This is about Jesus pouring Himself out and choosing to do so rather than being a person who says, constantly fill me in. And Paul uses Him as the example of humility. Of what it means to live a life desiring to be poured out. God, use me and use my life. Use what you've given me and help me pour it out because I would rather prefer that my life be poured out than constantly being filled in, filled in, filled in. Kenosis. In verse 5, he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. He makes it clear, you could have this attitude. No excuses. If you're in Christ, if Christ is alive in you, if the Holy Spirit has residence within you, you need to have, you must have this mind. You must have this attitude. You must be submitted like Jesus was submitted to the Father. You must be selfless like Jesus was selfless. And you must be humble. You must act in humility like Jesus did. Not try to. He says you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now here it is. Though He was God... Though Jesus was fully God, never existed without being God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. The word there is kenosis. Instead, Jesus poured himself out. He took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Let's unpack this a little bit. In verse 7, we see there that Jesus, or in verse 6, excuse me, it says Jesus, though he was God, and we know that God was, uh, Jesus was the Word made flesh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And in in John chapter 1, later on it says, and the Word became made flesh within us, right? That This is known as the incarnation. It's God coming to dwell on earth in a human form through the person of Jesus. So Paul is making it clear here that, look, Jesus was always God. He will always be God. Always existed before the beginning of time. We know this as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, even though Jesus was God, he didn't think he needed to hold on to his godliness because he was insecure. Because he needed to have power over people. Why didn't Jesus need to hold on to equality with God? Because he always had it. He didn't need to hold on to it. He always had it. He always was God. But it says instead, he gave up his his divine privileges, right? That means Jesus didn't come to the earth Born an adult, swinging a hammer, saying, let's get it on, Satan. We're going to fix this thing right now. No, Jesus gave up those divine privileges. He kenosis, right? He poured himself out. He gave up those divine privileges and came and was born a baby. Who grew up, who went through puberty, who experienced growth pains, who understood what it was like to be rejected. Who understood what it was like to be betrayed. Who understood and felt the pain of the whips across his back. Of the thorns being pushed upon his head. 
Jesus did not need to give up those divine privileges because He was fully God. At a snap of His finger, it could have been all done. But He was submitted to the Father and the Father's will. That was His attitude. He came and He was selfless. It says He came and He took human form and He took the form of a servant. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve others. He came to pour out. And that's what the Scripture is saying here. That's the idea of kenosis. That Jesus, clothed in humanity, doesn't cease to be God. But He reveals to us who God is. Through His humanity. I know this is hard stuff to wrap our heads around, right? But it's one of the most theologically important statements because some people would say, Jesus stopped being God. Jesus was just a man. Jesus came and He was a good man. He was connected to God. But it says there that He didn't have divine privileges. No, He didn't need to hold on to His equality with God because He always had it. He always was God. When He died on the cross and He was in the grave, He was God. When He walked on water and Peter walked to Him, He was God. When He turned water into wine, He was God. When He wept over the mountains and overseeing Jerusalem, He was God. When He cried because His friend Lazarus was dead and He saw the brokenness of His sisters, He was God. And when He spoke to that tomb and Lazarus came out alive, He was God as well. He always was God but never felt the need to cling to it. And what Paul is saying, he's saying your life, the goal of your life, should never be to cling on to the things that God has given to you. If you live your life close-fisted, how could you ever receive? If I try to put something into your hand and your fist is closed, you can't receive it from me. The only way you could receive it from me is if you open your hand and you pour it out. You pour out, you make room to be filled in. It's upside down because in this life, we're taught, you fill yourself up. You take, you know, you, you get yours. And Paul is saying, change your attitude. It's the attitude, right? It's this attitude that matters, that changes your outlook on things, of selflessness, to say, God, pour me out rather than fill me in. Now, it's, it's hard to pour out when you don't know that you're filled. This is again why identity is so important. And this is again why Paul started this whole thing by saying, look, you've been encouraged, you've been loved, you have fellowship. When you know your identity is secure, when you're grounded in that identity, you're so full, you can't help but pour out. But some people, it's the saddest thing you'll see, they don't know they're full. Don't know their value. Don't know their worth. Don't know their purpose. Don't know their mission. Don't know their God. So they believe that they're empty. So their whole life, they pass it by and they waste time seeking to fill themselves, trying to gain approval from people, trying to gain acceptance from people, trying to have people love them and tell me that I'm worth something. They don't realize they're full. So their whole life they live saying, fill me because I'm empty. No, brother, sister, hear me well. Have you been encouraged by Christ? Have you experienced His love? Do you have fellowship with the Spirit? Is there tenderness in your heart? Then you're full, brother. You're full, sister. Time to live selfless. 
Pour out. Pour out. Don't cling on to it. Pour it out. The scripture ends with this. In verse 9, Paul ends with a hymn. This was a hymn that the early church would sing to remind each other of who Christ was. And what Paul is saying is, when you have a life that has an attitude that's submitted, an attitude of submission, an attitude of selflessness, an attitude of humility, it will give you an attitude of praise. And the action with praise is that your devotion, your attention, your words, your life is always up and not around. Paul gives them perspective to say, look, you could choose to live with your eyes looking around you, your circumstances, your issues, your problems, your struggles, your suffering. That will rob you of your praise. It will rob you of your praise. Paul is saying, if I kept my eyes on this guard that I'm chained to for 24 hours a day, I won't have an attitude of praise in my heart. I wouldn't be able to praise God. I mean, I'm in a Roman jail, and I know that they're going to cut my head off soon. But my attitude is not looking around. My attitude is always eyes up. Mind up. Love up. Praise up. Why? Jesus. He says, therefore, God elevated him. He said, God took this perfect example of humility and selflessness, elevated him to a place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names, that at that name, that at the name of Jesus, no other name. This is Paul laying it down here, saying, look, this is why we are selfless. This is why we're submitted. This is why we have humility in our hearts. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's saying, look, who are we becoming? We're becoming more like Jesus. How are we becoming like that? By being selfless, being humble, being submitted, and having an attitude of praise. Listen, you don't need to wait till you reach eternity to praise God. You could praise God today. You don't need to wait for the greatest thing to happen in your life, the breakthroughs to happen in your life. You don't need to wait till then to praise God. You could praise God today. You are loved by the King. You've been empowered to have the same mind and attitude that He does. The downward action of the kingdom. You think about the kingdom of heaven and Jesus being the King of that kingdom. The downward action of that. The humility, the posture of, of staying low. The posture of staying low gives you a position of power so that you could go up. I played football, and in football they teach you when you block, you don't block high. They teach you, you stay low. Why do you stay low when you block? Because when you stay low, you have leverage. You block from a place of strength when you stay low. The second you get high in football, you get run over. Same thing in the kingdom. The second you try to elevate yourself too high, you get run over in the kingdom. Those who stay low 
gain a leverage, gain a position of strength and power. And God fills you when you're humble that way. It says there in James, right? It says, God resists the proud, those who are high, those who want to block high up here and are always wanting the attention on them and are selfish. God resists those people, but those who stay low and block from a position of leverage and strength, God gives grace to the humble. He gives power to them. He gives strength to them. He gives mercy to them. He gives this grace, this this outpouring of favor of God comes to those who decide to stay low. And what happens when you bow? You get low. If you ever struggle with humility, just walk out on a clear night and look up at the stars. And it'll remind you that the God of the heavens made all that and you didn't. And you'll realize just how low you are. Well, Paul says here this, that the name of Jesus is the name which every knee should bow and every tongue confess is the Lord for the glory of God the Father. God is always working on you. He's always working on your attitudes. He's giving you a mind and an attitude of Christ, an attitude that's upside down from this world. It'll shake you. It'll disorient you. It'll make you question what's real. Just like those upside down houses did. And say, am I my right side up or my right side down? But Paul gives us the blueprint. Be submitted. Be selfless. Be humble. And have an attitude of praise. Can we stand together?